Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks. My thanks to Zach, our worship team, for leading us in worship in song. And now, let's worship in the Word, shall we? So, last week, our pastor uh, gloriously taught us about hope. We introduced the Advent series last week. Week one was about hope, and, and he used this as the message of the gospel. I want to call our attention to it. He said, the light of the world has stepped down into darkness in order to call us out of our darkness and into his marvelous light. No wonder we have hope, right? It's amazing. I mean, when I think of Advent, and, and we're in week two this, this week, but when I think of Advent, I think of adoring Jesus, the one who is the light, to step down in this darkness. So we talked about hope last week. This week, we will talk about joy. Why? Because Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. This is taken from our excellent Advent devotional that Pastor Trey put together. There's an excerpt about this week that I want to read to you. He says, as we will discover this week, the Father sent His Son to call sinners to repentance. And in our repentance, we experience the life and love of the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. This is true of us today, tomorrow, and forevermore. This reality transcends our current circumstances. Happiness is based on circumstance. Joy is based on the reality that the light of the world has stepped into darkness. Today, one of my purposes is to say, let's recapture some of the clarity some of the specificity, some of the focus, the sharpness, the directness of what Jesus says about how you respond to the gospel in repentance and in belief. We're going to learn what true repentance looks like, and then we want to make some applications from those truths. So I invite you, you have a couple of handouts, as Pastor Trey said. One of them is the fill-in-the-blank notes, the sermon notes, I've also given you on the back of the bulletin a uh, part of the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, of Repentance and Faith. I'm going to use that in a few moments, and I want you to pay attention to that, if you would, and join with me as we look at those things together. Our passage today, there are two passages that will be key. One is found in Luke chapter 5, and here's the setting. Matthew has been called by Jesus to follow him. And what an amazing event that was. Matthew was a tax collector, probably many of you know that. He was among the most hated group of Jews by his fellow people because he was doing the Romans' dirty work. He was getting wealthy doing it. And we don't know for sure how many times he had seen Jesus, but one day when Jesus is passing by his place of business, his tax booth, he looks to him and says, follow me. And don't miss this. 
Matthew drops everything. Left it behind. I love how the chosen uh, demonstrates it, that he locked it up and gave the key to the Roman soldier. First of all, there could have been serious implications for him as far as his health for doing that. The Romans could have killed him immediately. Life meant little to them. But instead, he was willing to forsake everything to follow this Messiah. And so what Matthew has done here is he makes this great feast, and Jesus is the guest of honor. And he invites all kinds of people from Capernaum to come. But the Pharisees, those religious jokers who followed Jesus around, Everywhere he went, they ask Jesus' disciples, why is he eating with sinners? Church, aren't we glad that Jesus eats with sinners? <laughs> and so here's Jesus' response. We're going to find it in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 31, the two verses. I would invite you, if you're able, to stand with me. And even if you'd like to, I'd like you to read aloud with me, if you so choose, God's Word. Here's how Jesus answers those religious jokers who are questioning why he would eat with a certain group of people. He says, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I don't believe Jesus ever spoke anything careless. We know he was without sin. He was without guile. But do you wonder ever if he spoke with irony? <laughs> he knew those Pharisees were sick. And by the way, all of us are. On another occasion, this will be our next passage, and I want you to read it with me again in a, in a minute. He, it's still contemporaneous with this event. Jesus is in Galilee. And we find it in the Gospel of Mark. It's chapter 1. You can follow along if you want to read out loud with me. Please do so. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God at, is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, would you now add your blessing to our reading, to our hearing, to our understanding, to our applying, to our obedience to your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So what should our response be when we hear the gospel? What did Jesus say? So it's your first note. He said that we should repent and believe. And by the way, this was not a suggestion. This is an imperative from Jesus. We're going to see it in other scriptures today. He's not saying, well, if you hear the gospel, you've got the option. No, he's saying you should repent and believe. To repent 
It's to turn from sin. It's to do a 180. And this turning from sin in repentance to Christ in faith is sometimes called conversion, or we may say being born again. And these, the repentance, to, to repent and believe, repentance and faith are different aspects, and I want you to not miss this, of one act. One act of coming to Christ for salvation. They always go together, and they occur at the very same time. I called your attention earlier to this confession of faith of New Hampshire. I'm going to use it in the next portion of of my time with you. I want to call your attention to you. And I want to give you a challenge here today. We're going to dig a little deep this morning when it comes to repentance. I want you to stick with me because I think you're going to carry away with you today some deeper insights, some richness here that comes out of the experience of those who have gone before us. Did you ever think much about the fact that we're not the first people to read the Bible? No laughter. That's my joke for the day. That's it. <laughs> Repentance is not a joke sermon. That's my, right? We're not the first people to read the Bible. We're not the first people to ever think about what the words mean. About how it's applied to our life. So some of our forebears have actually written down in statements. They're called confessions of faith or creeds how they understand the Scripture on certain key points. And so that's what I want to point your attention to. We're going to go through this confession of faith together. Look at it with me, if you would, please. The confessors start out by saying, We believe the Scriptures teach that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces. So let me stop and say, Whenever you look at a confession of faith, whenever you read a creed that has been widely accepted in the church, guess what you probably ought to do? You ought to probably slow down because there's some pregnant brevity here. Every word was carefully chosen. So, the confessors say, also inseparable graces wrought in the soul by the regenerating Spirit of God. So what have we just learned? Well, just, just as Jesus said, repentance and faith are inseparable, and they occur in our soul. It's a work of the Spirit of God, and here's how it happens. They go on to say, whereby, being deeply convinced of our guilt danger, and helplessness, and of the way of salvation by Christ, and here's the language of turning, we turn to God. How? Well, here's what the confessors say. With unfeigned, now you guys remember I'm from Oklahoma. I had to look this word up. What unfeigned means is authentic Genuine. How we turn to God, we turn to Him with unfeigned. Here's some key words. Contrition. Confession. And supplication for mercy. 
at the same time, heartily receiving the Lord Jesus as our prophet, our priest, and king, and relying on Him alone as the only and all-sufficient Savior. So I want you to notice four words or phrases regarding repentance that have solid biblical roots. The first, this statement says, and Bible teaches, is that to repent is a sacred duty. It's a sacred duty. What does that mean? Well, it means what God says in Acts chapter 17, 30 is still true. What's happening there is Paul is addressing these philosophers, these skilled uh, intellectuals who most likely had never heard of Christ. And he's telling them some things, and he's telling them this. It's verse 17, uh, chapter 17, excuse me, verse 30. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Why? Why did God overlook a time of ignorance? Well, the Christ had not yet appeared. The fullness of time hadn't yet happened. The incarnate word was not made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was still at the right hand of the Father. So those times of ignorance, God ignores. But look what he says. But now, because Christ has appeared, he commands all people everywhere to repent. If God commands it, church, it's our duty to respond. We're responsible. How do we turn to God in repentance from our sin? What should our posture be like before Him? And I want you to watch this. And here's a way to think about repentance that's deeply biblical. The first way is, is involves contrition. Do you notice that word? Do you see it in that confession of faith? It's contrition. Well, what is contrition? Well, thank God for the Apostle Paul. He defines it in what we call the second letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 7, verse 10. He describes it this way. For godly grief which means godly sorrow over our sin. It means we haven't made peace with our sin, but we've declared war on it. Godly sorrow, excuse me, godly grief or sorrow produces a repentance or a turning that leads to salvation without regret. And then he contrasts it with worldly grief. He says, worldly, whereas worldly grief, and what is worldly grief? Well, it's this. We're sorry because we got caught. We're sorry because someone knows. We're sorry because we have consequences for our actions. That's not godly grief. That's worldly grief. What does that produce? Paul says it produces death. So contrition is godly sorrow or grief. The next word in that confession, uh, confession that's important is that repentance always includes confession. It always includes confession. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, and I, I would imagine that many of you are very familiar with this verse. 
says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much in righteousness? All. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful promise, a result of confession. But here's the key, beloved. What does it mean to confess? This is a very interesting biblical word here. I've told you in the past that I graduated from seminary, not cum laude or magna cum laude. I graduated, thank you, laude. That's my joke there. I knew enough Greek to be able to pass. Thank you, Lord. This word is really interesting. It means, it's the word homologeo. It means to say the same thing that God says about our sin. Isn't that interesting? So if I confess my sin, I say the same thing about my sin that God does. That's confession. And candidly, there have been seasons in my life I thought there's been confession. Guess what? It's not confession. So do you begin to see what true repentance looks like? It's my duty to repent. God grants me repentance through grace. It grows out of a godly sorrow over my sin. It always leads me to saying the same thing that God says about my sin. One other part, would you look at it? It includes supplication for mercy. There's a story, maybe you're familiar with it, found in Luke chapter 18. It's two men at the temple who are praying. One is a Pharisee, and you guys will forgive me for calling them religious jokers, but that's what they were. One's a Pharisee, one's a tax collector. And the Pharisee has this posture. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all those other guys. (laughs) I thank you that I'm not like the tax collectors and the prostitutes and those that are far from God, those that are sinners. No, I thank you that I'm not like them. I pay my tithes. I tip God. I fast. I'm good. And then you have the tax collector who won't even cause his eye to look to heaven. He will bow his head before the Lord in contrition and confession. And he says, Oh God, have mercy on me. Be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. As Jesus tells that story, He tells His followers and listeners, who do you think went away justified? Justified is a very important legal word. It means to be made right in a legal sense before God. Isn't that amazing? Jesus tells the audience, it's the tax collector who's been made right with God, not the Pharisee. So whenever we hear the gospel, the glorious good news that the Son of God has appeared in the flesh, that He gave up His rights, that He willfully went to the cross, that He died for our sins, lived a sinless life, was buried, was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures in a glorious fashion. When we hear that good news, we're supposed to repent and believe. 
And what is repentance? It's a duty. It's a grace. It involves contrition, godly sorrow, confession. It involves saying the same thing about our sin that God does. It includes supplication, a cry for mercy. Oh God, forgive me, for I'm a sinner. And Jesus says that kind of repentance is the way you respond to the gospel. Let me see if we can make a few applications here. Here's the first one. So if we, if you and I respond to the gospel in the way Jesus said, if we repent and believe, here's the first one. Genuine repentance will result in changes in my life. It always does. It always results in changes in my life. It changes me internally, emotionally. It changes me relationally, the way I relate to others. It changes me spiritually in the sense of my intimacy with God. These changes occur when we declare war on our sin instead of making peace. And as a result of all those changes, it leads me to wholeness and health, abundance, to be in that place where God created us to be. I love what J.I. Packer says in his book, Concise Theology, when speaking about repentance. He says this, the New Testament word for repentance means changing one's mind so that one's views and values and goals and ways are changed and one's whole life is lived differently. The change is radical, both inwardly and outwardly. Mind and judgment, will and affections, behavior and lifestyle Motives and purposes are all involved. And then he ends it this way. Repenting means starting to live a new life. Here's the next thing I want you to notice in application, that while repentance occurs first at conversion, God intends intends for it to be a continuing disposition of my heart leading to ongoing transformation in my life. In other words, he expects a repentant heart and an attitude to accompany my walk with him. So that when I fail, so when I fall short of the mark, when I sin, when I get off the road, off the path to righteousness, I can repent, I can get back on the road, and when I disobey, I repent and I embrace obedience again. This is reflected in the Lord's Prayer when He says this is the way we ought to pray. The very familiar words. Remember He says, give us our daily bread. And here it is. Here's the language of repentance, of turning. Remember He said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. When we say to God... God, Father, please forgive my debts, my trespasses, my sins. That is supplication. It's a cry for mercy. And you and I ought to come before the Lord with some regularity and pray a prayer like the one found in Psalm 139. It'll be on your screen. It says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. Why? 
Why did the psalmist say that? Well, so we can turn, so we can respond in sorrowful contrition, in genuine confession, and ask God to forgive and make supplication for mercy and forsake that sin so that life change can occur. And the psalmist says, if that happens, lead me, Lord, in the way that's everlasting. Listen, beloved, I'm convinced that in the evangelical church of the last several years, this is one of those words and themes and topics to our great spiritual, emotional, personal, and relational detriment that we've not embraced. I don't know about you, but it's been a long time since I've heard a sermon on repentance. And so some of us don't even have the words to repent. We don't know the vocabulary. We don't know the language. We don't even know how to say to God, Oh God, please forgive me. So how can you learn it? You can learn the language of repentance from God's Word in the book of Psalms. I've given you, in addition to that psalm, I just read the 139th Psalm in your notes underneath that confession. I've given you seven penitential psalms. And they're wonderful. And if you'll read through them, you'll begin to get a glimpse into the heart of a person who is repentant. And the kind of thing that you ought to say to God about your sin and yourself as you ask Him for forgiveness. So how important is this topic we're talking about today? Let me put it this way. Well, even better yet, let me tell you what Jesus said about it. We find it in Luke chapter 13, and twice he says this, Without repentance, we will perish. He put it just that bluntly. Unless you think that, that he's talking about conversion here, he's talking about more than that. The tense is indicates that this is an ongoing process, an ongoing disposition. Certainly at the moment of conversion, Repentance leads to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We believe that and stipulate that. But what, what, what he's saying here is without ongoing repentance as well, something in you will die. A relationship might die. If you make peace with your sin instead of declaring war on it, something will die. And Jesus didn't come so we would die. He came so we'd have abundant life. And I'm not telling you today that it's not going to be a struggle. If it's not a struggle for you, raise your hand. If you are, you're lying in church, right? It's a struggle for all of us, is it not? But that's where the battle is. Christ is the victor. He's gloriously defeated sin. And he's provided a way for us through repentance. And contrition, and confession, and supplication to live victoriously, to live abundantly. And here's some more good news. 
With repentance, there's forgiveness of sins. Refreshment for our souls. It's like a stream of living water that will flow through us and joy that comes from that. No wonder when the angel of the Lord appeared that night that Jesus was born, when He appeared to the shepherds, He said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. No wonder that after that a multitude of angels appeared and sang glory to God in the highest. No wonder the righteous man, Simeon, who was waiting in the temple because the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not taste death until he saw the Christ. No wonder when he took that newborn baby in his arms and blessed God. And he said this, for my eyes have seen your salvation. No wonder when Isaac Watts, who penned this verse of the great Christmas carol, Joy to the World, he said this. He said, no more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He, Jesus, comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Why do we have joy? The kingdom of God has come. Grace has appeared. His blessings are flowing as far as the curse of sin and is found repentance and forgiveness and joy can be yours. Let's pray. Oh God, I'm thankful for your grace. I'm thankful for your love. I'm thankful for your truth. When we know the truth, it sets us free. Oh God, I pray that your Holy Spirit right now would be drawing some in this room to a place of repentance and faith. Lord, I pray for believers in this room who have stopped growing, who have stopped pursuing You, who have settled for a spirituality that's less than full and rich and abundant. Lord, it's because our hearts have grown cold and we have ceased repenting before You when Your Spirit speaks to us. And so, Lord, take the truth of Your Word and by Your Spirit, planet in our hearts and souls grow great spiritual fruit out of it forgiveness refreshment hope joy that blesses our lives and bring you glory i pray these things in the authority and the beauty of the name of jesus amen i want to invite you while our worship team leads us to come and receive the elements of the Lord's table. I invite you as you come back to your seats and worship, and then I'll come up and lead us through that journey. You may be seated. Let me ask you a question this morning. Let's just say that I were your enemy, and I wanted to hurt you. I wanted to steal some of the best things 
in life from you. I wanted to kill some of the most valuable things that God could give you personally, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. How do you think I might do that if I were your enemy? Well, let me tell you what the teaching today suggests. If I were your enemy, this is what I would do. I would do my best to convince you that some of the things that God says are sins are really not that bad. If I were your enemy, I would not want you to feel guilty. I would not want you to feel in danger. I would not want you to feel conviction. And I would not want you to feel helpless. Why? Because if I were your enemy, and I could convince you that a word, that a habit, that an act, a behavior, a lifestyle, a practice was not sinful, if I could convince you of that, then guess what you would never do? You would never turn from it. You would never feel sorry for it. You would never say the same thing about that that God says about it. And you would never ask God for forgiveness. And so if I wanted to just do you the worst harm, then I would do everything I could to convince you that all is well. There is no sin. Do you have any repenting to do today? Here's what I want you to do with me. I want you to take the elements of communion, the symbols that represent the body and blood of Jesus. What we're doing now is more than just an event that we put on Planning Center. This is serious business between you and God as a church. I want you to take a few moments and approach the throne of grace in weakness and fear and trembling. Also joy. If, if repentance is called for today, if contrition and confession and supplication for mercy is called for today, then I want to give you a few moments to do business with the Lord and have an encounter with Him before we take this Lord's Supper together. I invite you to do that right now. I'd like you to invite you to take the bread that represents His body. Before we eat of His flesh, I want to remind you that this precious, sinless body was crushed for us. This body took the wrath that we so richly deserve. Some have called that cosmic child abuse. 
I call it the greatest act of love ever shown to mankind. Because when his body was broken, when he was forsaken and separated from his father, we were made to be reconciled to him. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That his body that was broken for us. So let's remember him and that precious body. Take and eat. And then Jesus took the cup on that night and he said, this is my blood which is shed for you for the remission of sins. I'm reminded of that song that Andre Crouch wrote so many years ago. That the blood that gives me strength from day to day will never lose its power. The blood that was shed to pay for all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Take and drink. I invite you to stand and worship and celebrate what Jesus has done for us.